are back. You are back. We are all together again. We're here. We're here. We're alive. Still, we're breathing. I'm your host, Millie Brooks. This is a podcast where we give light and levity to infertility and different pathways to parenthood. Today's guest is returning to the show. You may remember her from episode 72, where we discussed heteronormativity in the fertility industry. Please welcome TNT, dynamite in a bag, Tracy Joe Palmer. <laughs> Hello. Happy to be back. Did you like that intro? I loved it. Dynamite, TNT. TNT. Please feel free to use that. <laughs> Noted. On your website. <laughs> Well, welcome back to the show. I knew that if I was going to have an egg don- donor episode, which every everybody that is coming later in the season, that I needed to have a sperm donor episode, and I knew that you'd be the perfect person to talk to about that. Yeah, yeah. We, um, we used a donor, and I have a lot of thoughts about it, okay. actually. Okay, well, let's get into it. I mean... So the topic today is how do we romanticize sperm donors? And you actually mentioned this theme when prepping for the interview, and it really spoke to me because, well, I'll just be very honest, I was romanticizing the idea of having a sperm donor when creating this episode. I was like putting myself in that position if our journey had led us to that point and trying to map out in my head how it would go. Yeah. I mean, I think that's normal. And I definitely know that in the beginning of our process, I did the same. Mm -hmm. I definitely romanticized. I mean, to be honest, at at first I was freaked out about it. Like it's, it felt a little, I think I even said this in, the first episode I was on it, it felt like a, like Gattaca shit. Like it was like, you know, she was blue eyes and brown hair. Like it felt yes. really bizarre to me. Yes. Um, but then once you kind of get into it and you realize how much money you're spending, then I was like, oh shit, I'm going to get picky with this. Yeah. So I get how you can start to kind of romanticize and, uh, you know, put a lot of pressure on picking out a donor. Um, but I don't necessarily know if that's good either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I felt like, I mean, when you even typed the words romanticizing, I, I just sort of like went to this place of like, yeah, we're all kind of putting like really idealistic expectations on this human being um, to create, you know, a larger than life character for ourselves. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, listen, choosing a donor is a big deal. You're choosing 50% of your potential child's DNA. Like I, it it is a big deal. So I don't want to like downplay that. It is a huge deal. But also if you think about you know, specifically in heterosexual relationships, when you're like choosing your partner, you're not like asking for medical history and all of this other stuff that goes into choosing a sperm donor. And and in all my, you know, 
time in the infertility world and working with my clients, I've never once had somebody come back after having a child and be like, I really wish I would have chosen a different donor. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, ultimately, yeah. you're you're going to love your kid. So the pressure and the romantic romanticization that we do with choosing a donor is kind of bizarre when you really start to think about it. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's real. It really is sort of specific to this situation in a way. Totally. Well, can you share a little bit about your process from beginning your search to deciding on your donor? Totally. I mean, a little bit of background. I think that I bring a unique perspective to choosing a sperm donor for two reasons. Um, I'm adopted and I have known as long as I can remember that I was adopted. It was um, when I was really little, my parents kind of talked to me about it with age appropriate language as I grew up. So it was never like a, a big reveal, you're adopted, you know? So um, I think that having that background and growing up where I'm not genetically linked to my parents gave me a different perspective when choosing a sperm donor. And the other thing is, I'm in a same-sex relationship. And so we always knew that we would need a sperm donor. Um, and so it wasn't something that uh, if you're in a relationship with somebody who brings sperm to the table and then you find out that you need to then use a sperm donor where there might be some mourning of the loss of what you thought you were going to do, we knew from the start we would need a sperm donor. So I think that we were able to enter into all of these things with a little bit more, um, like a little bit more of reality check ab about it. It wasn't as mm. like a romantic experience because it was something that we knew from the start when we wanted to start a family that we would need to choose a sperm donor. Um, and so we started by just kind of researching the different banks um, that were available in the United States. Um, and in an ideal world, I would have loved to choose a bank that was not-for-profit. Um, I believe there's only one in the United States that's a not-for-profit sperm bank. Um, and so that just didn't work out for us. We ended up choosing Seattle Sperm Bank um, for two reasons. It was semi-close to us, so we just figured for shipping purposes – um, it might cause less issue and less stress. And also at the time it was the cheapest sperm bank to be completely honest, because vials of sperm are not cheap. Uh, I think it started when we started our journey, I think they were $800 a vial and we were spending a hundred dollars for shipping as well. Mm. So, um, we chose Seattle sperm bank and, um, we have had a great experience with them. We started with at-home inseminations and then ended up at a fertility clinic. Um, but we did 10 IUIs. So um, I think that our process of choosing a donor started, I had, you know, all these things to check off the list. We finally got pregnant after our fourth sperm donor. Mm. Okay, so you guys went through four different donors. Yes. Yep. So, and I think that in the beginning, I it was a very romantic process choosing the donor, but after you've done that, you're doing that for the fourth time. It it's it's not. It's like, you know, we had a couple things that were important to us and 
went by those things, chose the donor. And honestly, when I finally got my positive pregnancy test, my wife looked at me and said, can you pull up that donor profile? She didn't even remember which donor (laughs) we had chosen because we had looked at so many. We had gone through so many. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Take us from there. What happened after that? I guess the things that were became important to us in the end. I think in the beginning, I was like, you know, I want someone who looks like my wife and I want all of these things. And I don't know, that guy has blue eyes and she has brown eyes. And, you know, we're ch- like trying to get, I don't know, his audio interview was a little weird. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not that guy. I didn't really love his voice. You know, we were like, I was being so picky. And I think once again, when you're spending that much money, you can be picky and you should be picky. It's 50% of your kid's DNA. But once again, when we've done it by the fourth time, by that fourth donor, all we cared about was medical history. Um, if they had live births reported, we wanted to know that the sperm worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like loosely Lindsay's characteristics. But even that in the end wasn't like super important to us. The medical history and the live births like became the two priorities by the fourth donor. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I um I wouldn't even I you know in my own fantasy as I mentioned earlier, I didn't even factor in medical history. Wow. Yeah. That I mean that that became really important cuz you can you know, you start to look back and it's like there are just certain things that we've both dealt with in our family, mental illness, alcoholism, things like that. And it's just like, if we can set our kid up with maybe a little bit more possibility for success in those, in those areas, um, we're going to choose it. Oh gosh. Yeah. That's a huge, oh my gosh, that's huge. And you know, different banks, you get different information. Um, our bank, you only got baby pictures. Some banks will do like celebrity lookalike to your donor. Yes. Or or some of them do provide adult photos. I don't think many do, but also like the celebrity lookalike photos is like, yeah, you, you wish. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it, yeah. it feels a little <laughs> weird. Oh, that's, yeah. On a good day. Yeah, ex- exactly. Maybe with a little face tune. He looks yeah, like Leonardo DiCaprio or whatever. or something. Yeah. Tell me more about the audio message. I've never heard of that. Honestly, that became one of the more important parts of choosing a donor. And the funny thing about that is the final donor that we chose, who is 50% of Cohen's DNA, didn't have an audio interview. And maybe that's maybe that's for the best, but it would, you know, the, the interviewer at Seattle Sperm Bank would take every donor through these same questions. Um, you know, like what was your relationship with your parents? Like why, you know, the final, one of the final questions that became important to me was why are you like choosing to become a donor? Mm. And I think, you know, this donor, they didn't have an audio interview, but they had the questions written out, um, and his answers to it. And his answer was, he had had a friend who was donor conceived and he just wanted to help other families who 
you know, needed sperm in order to grow their families. And I was like, all right, nailed it. Like, that's a great reason to, but honestly, some of them are like college students. And if, if he would have said I needed the cash, I don't know, like, there's no judgment for me on like why somebody chooses to donate because it's a, it's a gift to us. We're just grateful that people are willing to do that. So, you know, a reason that resonated with us was preferable, but I also appreciate honesty, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have any, I know that, um, I know another couple who used a sp- sperm donor and it was really important for them to, for the donor to be LGBTQ friendly. Was that a question? Could you anticipate that? At our bank, it wasn't a specific question. Um, I and I guess no, I didn't really think about it in the moment um, because I mean, I guess maybe I'm coming at it from like a queer lens. But so many people who need sperm banks are in the LGBTQ community that it's like if you if you have a problem with that, then you probably shouldn't be donating. Yeah, totally. Um, and so I guess for me, it was just kind of like, well, I don't really care what you th- you think because right, we're the ones like on the receiving end, and that's what counts, I guess. Right, like that probably would have been in their consideration. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope bank. so. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so. Right. Now, let's talk about known identification versus anonymous. How did you guys make your decision and why? Totally. I think that, uh, once again, because I'm adopted, that has informed so many of our decisions throughout this donor process. And one of them is Um, so when I was adopted, everything was what they called closed adoptions. You didn't get any information about your birth parents, um, until you turned 18 and then you were given, I, I I was given the name of my birth mother and my contact had to go through the agency that I was adopted through. We had to like mail letters to the agency. They would read them, make sure they're okay. Then send them to my birth mother. Then she would, and it was like this very, mediated process. Um, and then eventually I asked her for my birth father's name and I found him on my own. Um, but essentially like I grew up not knowing anything until I was 18. Even my parents didn't know anything. Um, we weren't given any information. So, you know, I never knew where I got my blonde hair or, you know, what my, every time I would go to the doctor, it was like, does, you know, X run in your family? I have no idea. And I just couldn't imagine not giving Cohen that information and he can do with it what he wants. Um, but we, we definitely wanted, I can't imagine not letting him know where 50% of his DNA comes from. That became really important to us, to me specifically. Yeah. Um, so when the donor that so it basically means you know everything about the donor. Do you know their name? We don't know their name. So it's kind of similar to my adoption agency where at 18 he'll have the opportunity to then reach out to the bank um and they will I don't know if they connect them or if they just would give us the information and then we can do with it what we want. Um 
I assume there's some sort of connection there. So at the Seattle Sperm Bank, there are open ID donors, which means they are open to contact at somewhere down like 18 or older down the road. And then there are anonymous donors who are not open to it. Um, and the, the interesting thing about that is that's not going to exist much longer. Anonymous donors, that's not going to exist. 23andMe, Ancestry.com, it's, it's, I don't know, it, it almost, and I know that there's conversations in the donor conceived community, um, you know, adults who have been donor conceived, that they believe that it's almost unethical Mm. to have anonymous donors. Um, Mm. And so I would anticipate, you know, in years to come that 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 may go away. Because, that might be a- obsolete. Yeah, because eventually it's, it is going to be like 23. Like, I mean, how many people have done 23andMe or Ancestry.com or all this stuff? So that's maybe a side issue. Mm-hmm. But definitely being able to give Cohen all the information that we have and all of the tools. And he can choose from there. No pressure, support from us 100%, but like at least giving him the information was really important to us, which is why we chose to have an open ID donor. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's a really interesting conversation for me because I I think it is I think it is kind of important. I guess just genetically with again back to the medical history, you know, knowing <clears throat> being able to anticipate any type of medical complications in the future is so, is so, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yep. Bare minimum. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I also think I'm sure I will be definitely listening to the egg donor episode. Um, I think that it probably, once again, I just have a unique lens because we have always known we will need a sperm donor. And I think like, say we would have had to use an egg donor. I would have had to go through like a grieving process and it it would have been a different, I think it would have been a different way more maybe emotional experience. Um, and so I can see where in a, you know, heterosexual couple or a you know, a partnership where one person brings sperm and then they just, they end up having to use a sperm donor. That's probably a totally different experience. Um, but I think that we sometimes as parents are, you know, our fear comes into play when it comes to donors and we get scared that maybe one day we suddenly wouldn't be our child's parent anymore Mm. if they find their, you know, genetically linked parent, which I don't know, as an adopted person, that's never been a thing for me. My parents are my parents, you know? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. but it is, you know, I do have a unique relationship with like my birth father, um, a little bit less so with my birth mother, but it is important that I know where 50% of my DNA came from. That doesn't make my parents any less my parents, but I think I would have felt a little bit cheated had I not been given that information. Yeah. Well, and it is all the story about you. You know, their story is your story too. Totally. A hundred percent. Yep. Okay. Well, talk to us about the concept of diblings and 
where you see that fitting in your parenthood journey. Totally. Um, so we have like kind of always been excited about the dibbling possibility. Um, and that just means donor siblings. So other people who have used our donor, um, we were always like, thought it was cool. And once again, it's information that we would just like to collect to then give to our kid one day and he can do with it what he wants. Um, so almost immediately after Cohen was born, we report, I, I literally think it was like a week or two after he was born. Like we reported his birth to the sperm bank. Um, you know, we had a live birth using this donor and they then ask if you want to be added to the, um, I think it's called the sibling registry. Mm. And so we were like, heck yeah, sign us up. And in that registry, they essentially, you know, they give all the donors a fake name. Um, so it'd be like, you know, Charlie is this donor's name, but it's like not that donor's name. Mm-hmm. And so when you get into the registry, you're given like the first family to report a live birth with Charlie for say is Charlie zero one. The second family to report a birth is Charlie two. So when we logged in, we were our donor's name 13. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And we were like, holy shit. And not in like a upset sort of way, but just genuine surprise that there were that many. Charlie's got some turbo sperm. Turbo sperm. <laughs> and so we were like, wow. Okay. So we're the 13th. And, and mind you, only the 13th reported birth. Mm. So there could be, uh, um, our bank allows up to 25 families to use the same donor. Okay. And so what that means is like 25 families. So that could mean that a family could have multiple kids with that same donor. Like when, when we conceived Cohen, uh, we bought more of this same donor's sperm so that we could potentially try for a sibling one day. So we have more of the same donor's sperm stored. So we know that there are at least 13. We That registry isn't used very much, um, but there was a person in there who was like, hey, FYI, I've started a Facebook group that's a lot more active. If you want to be added, find me on Facebook and I'll add you to the group. And so from there, we were like, great, sign us up. And so there's um, a group that there's six families Um, with six kids, kind of all similarly, like within a year age of Cohen, our kid. Um, And it's been really, really cool to, you know, we exchange photos. Um, Almost every kid in the group has reflux. And we we thought that Cohen had reflux for a second. And so even just like comparing like, they've started like a Google doc with like allergies that may pop up. Oh with my gosh. And it's just like things that you didn't even think about that will potentially be really helpful in parenting somebody who, you know, we only have limited information about 50% of his DNA. And honestly, I'm adopted and I was given medical history and I do have a semi relationship with my birth parents, but I still don't, it's, it's not like a phone call away of, Hey mom, did I ever, you know, does this run in our family? 
So the more information we have for him, the better, because he's a little bit limited on both sides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So back to the limit on 25 families, mm-hmm. that means he could have more than 25 children. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I mean, we hope to have more than one kid. Um, and we have, you know, I think we, we bought five more vials just because who knows how many IUIs or if we end up doing IVF for kid two. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And of the families that we've been in contact with, they all so far only have one child um, with this donor, but there are other families who also have more sperm purchased from the same donor. He, how many vials did Charlie produce? <laughs> I, I mean, like dozens upon dozens. Yeah, it's wild though, because because we did at home IUIs for a while, we got to see the vials, and when you see how much sperm is in those vials. It's kind of like, I don't know, maybe that, hey, there's an episode idea. You need to interview somebody who has donated their sperm. Oh, I know. Oh, well, I used to date somebody who was thinking about it. I want to know what that process is like. Well, it's very hard. It's very hard. Like you have to have. Yeah, I mean, I know they're really picky. They're very picky. They, you have to have a lot of sperm. Like I'm talking maybe hundreds of millions per shoot session. I know but this conversation will get, will get, that's what I was going to get like a little risky perhaps, but like how many visits to the bank? Oh, you, you have to mean? keep coming back. You have to keep coming back for months. I think I, I remember. And, and then it was also like, they didn't want to choose people. Um, you know, you had to be really conscientious of your sexual activity. You know, when you were coming all the time was was noted, <laughs> was noted in, in a spreadsheet. Well, they want you to save it up. Yeah, right? they want you to save yeah. it up. Which, I mean, I'm sure is the same experience that, you know, people go through when they're, depo- they're making their deposit at a fertility clinic. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It is, but it's like for months because they want to bank a lot of of your sperm. Well, they banked a lot of this donor sperm. Yeah, Charlie was really an overachiever. Um, I think that the interesting part to me, though, was like the whole substance stuff. Like you kind of have to be very conscientious about your substance abuse, you know, like marijuana, um, mm. alcohol, um, any kind of medication you're on. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, the medical history that they provide is extensive. And I mean, you have to provide a- any kind of sexually transmitted infections you've had, um, like ev- everything. It's pretty. Yeah. But I would, I would also say that this kind of ties into an earlier episode you did this season that like, I don't think sperm banks are very regulated, though, either. No. Like, probably a little bit more than fertility clinics, but, like, I'm sure that there could be some more transparency and regulation with sperm banks as well. Oh, 100%. Like, even, I mean, I don't, there's this this famous man in the Bay Area. I don't remember his name, which is probably good, but he went to UC Berkeley, and he 
fathered probably over 40 children, 40 or 50 children through a sperm bank in um in the seven in the eighties, I think. And it's a nightmare. Like I think somebody like one of the Jonas brothers bought the rights to the story and is gonna make a movie out of it. Yeah, sounds about right. It's just like I mean, it's there was just a guy, I think there was just a guy in Oregon who did like a 23andMe and found that he had 19 siblings and didn't know that he was donor conceived. I mean, so that like kind of comes back to the whole like, will there be anonymous donors? I just don't think that we have very much time left on the anonymous donor train. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right because of the regulations, you know, and, um, This actually dovetails quite nicely into my next question because I do know that certain areas do put a cap on how much sperm can be, I don't know, given um, in a certain zone because of incest. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I've read that, but I think now now that banks are shipping all over the place, Mm. I think that those regulations have kind of, it's more bank specific. Like, you know, our bank only allows 25 families to use one donor. I think it's more that than like within the region because it's proven by our Facebook group of people who've used the same donor as us. They're all over the country. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, the the sperm is being used all over. I mean, I, I had a friend who flew to Barbados to do her IVF and got sperm sent from the United States to Barbados. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, yeah. I don't, I think that those regulations, I think that what becomes uh, important when using the donor then is the different legalities when it comes to potentially having to adopt your child or the legalities of yours using a, a donor in your state. Mm. Um, and I, I think that, you know, unfortunately for queer folks, adopting our kid is the, you know, the safest thing to do, um, in a heterosexual relationship or a relationship that presents heterosexually. They're never going to question if that kid is yours because you have, you present as though you have both things that are needed to create a kid. Yep. But in queer relationships, there is the risk of, well, who's the who's the quote father because you don't have everything you need to create a baby. So, mm-hmm. you know, in Oregon, the laws are really great. Um, if you use uh, artificial insemination or any any way, the donor doesn't have any rights to the kids. Lindsay was immediately on the birth certificate, no questions asked. Now, you guys had to do some work prior to that, right? Well, we met with a lawyer. to. We knew that Lindsay was going to adopt our kid because I carried Cohen. We knew that Lindsay was going to adopt him because laws vary. And as we've seen with Roe versus Wade and things that are happening lately, things change and they change quickly. Um, and so just because we have same sex marriage in this country doesn't mean that we always will. And doesn't, unfortunately, same sex marriage doesn't include any sort of parental rights in, right now. 
Um, and so, and like I said, we're pretty protected in Oregon because she's on the birth certificate, but what if we move somewhere else? Mm, mm-hmm. Things change. And so, you know, after speaking to a lawyer about it, we just decided that it was worth it, um, to have that extra level of protection. Um, and we just finished the process actually a couple weeks ago and we're just waiting for like the judge to sign off on the paperwork. We also are waiting to see if Oregon DHS will waive our home visit, home study to approve Lindsay's adoption of her own child. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I think that less, less laws matter about, uh, like the sperm itself and more about the state that you're in Mm -mm. and you're the, what kind of relationship you're in to be completely honest. Um, yeah, because this is just not something that, uh, a same, uh, non same sex relationship would have to think about, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, were there any other laws in Oregon that you needed to honor or bypass or jump through? No, I mean, with when it came to adopting uh, Cohen, there were some hoops that Lindy, Lindsay had to jump through. She had to get an FBI background check Ugh. and just like a bunch of other paperwork and, and you know, legal fees and whatever. But as far as um, using sperm, no, it was it's it's pretty um, it's pretty easy now. I think that, you know, probably in the past it probably wasn't as easy but here it's pretty easy now did you I didn't even like in in prepping for this interview I realized that you could potentially get you know get a sperm donation from a donor that has passed away I honestly didn't really realize that either until I was doing like a little bit more research Mm -hmm. because I know some banks, as soon as someone passes away, they stop using that sperm. Right. Right. And which kind of makes sense because if, especially if it's like an open ID donor and they, they want to be able to connect people with like, you should probably try and limit the number of people that you're going to have to tell that they cannot connect with the person that they thought maybe they were going to be able to connect with. Right. Right. But yeah, I get, you know, it's interesting. It's like, that's something that we didn't even think about. You just assume, of course they're going to be there one day for, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Um, my hope would be that, you know, all of the information that we have, like medical history and all of that, at least, at least we have those things. Whereas if something came up down the road and we could not have contact with the donor. We at least have medical history and some of those things to pass along. Okay. You know, you take what you can get, I guess. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And it really tests your ability to be, to prioritize what's important. Yep. Like in the end, like Lindsay's characteristics (laughs) went out the window. It didn't even matter. Yeah. I mean, when... I, you know, like I said before, it's like, it's not like now that we have this beautiful, perfect baby, I'm like, God, you know, I don't know. Did we choose the right donor? Mm -hmm. Like what? No. And, and you don't think about that when you're partnering with somebody who could potentially bring 50% of your kid's DNA. Like, I know. 
You don't think about those things. So why, why? Oh, it makes me shiver that I never considered it. You know, that like, oh God, all of the people that I had sex with, like I just, oh, like I would never even like let them use my car. (laughs) Right, right. Oh, yep. Horrifying. Well, how can folks connect with you and possibly work with you as a fertility consultant? Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can find me on Instagram, Tracy Joe, J-O Palmer. Um, and then you can always email me as well. Um, inclusivefertility at gmail.com. My website is inclusivefertility.com. Happy to help anybody. Um, not just queer folks. I work with heterosexual couples as well. So anybody who just needs a little bit of extra support, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you find this community, the infertility and fertility community online is phenomenal. Um, but sometimes having a little bit more of an impartial voice or sounding board or just that person that you can email or text your frustrations or what's going on, um, that can be really valuable when you're going through potentially years, hopefully not, but I went through years of infertility. So yeah, that's that's what I'm here for. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Thank you so much, Tracy, for coming on and sharing your story. Uh, You guys go work with her. Work with her. Go to her website. Well, thank you, Millie. Have Tracy in your corner. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bombs, and see you next week. Week.